Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Andrew Teacher. I'm Managing Director at Montford Real Estate and I'm joined by Doug Jameson, who's Senior Managing Director at Savills over in New York and he's Co-Product Manager of the Knowledge Cube platform. Doug, great to see you this morning. Thank you for making the time and let's start really with what's going on in New York because over here in London we're looking at North America at a minute and we're scratching our heads thinking what's going on and we're clutching our fists hoping it doesn't get quite as bad as some of the things that we're seeing particularly in cities like San Francisco which do seem gripped in a death spiral of sorts at a minute but give us a bit of a headline from your view at Savills on what's happening in the New York office market right now. Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate the time as well. New York is in a very tough spot. I do not envy office landlords in this day and age. We're seeing people return to the city. So when you walk around on the streets, there are plenty of people here, but very few of them are going to an office five days a week. The ones who are going in frequently are clustered in places like Hudson Yards and the World Trade Center, with the newest and nicest buildings, with the best amenities. Many of the companies that are mandating that level of attendance happen to be clustering in those top-level trophy buildings as well. So if you own some of the commodity product, meaning a lot of the buildings built from, call it, the 1950s through maybe 10 years ago, a lot of that space is sitting. It's sitting for a long time. There are not a lot of prospects touring it. It's getting to the point where some of it can't even be given away at any price. And we're starting finally to see some transitions and transactions in the market of buildings actually changing hands, which had not been happening for a while. Mm. And what are the kind of discounts that things are going at? Where is the knife falling, so to speak? Well, it's interesting because asking rents haven't really gone down a lot because the few transactions that are happening tend to be in the nicest, most expensive buildings. And so that drags up the average rents of the transactions that we see in the market. The space that is sitting vacant isn't transacting. So you don't really get many comps out there. The other thing is we are starting to see a reversal where originally landlords had been trying to hold face rents by giving out larger tenant improvement allowances and free rent periods, which are a much bigger component of an office transaction in the U.S. than in many other parts of the world where the landlords don't necessarily provide that level of capital up front. And some of the landlords in New York are starting to limit the amount of improvement dollars that they're putting in buildings and reduce some of these concessions. The nicest buildings are still having activity. The lower level ones are not. And people are really trying to understand whether they're throwing good money after bad and which assets they're just going to give up on. And with interest rates rising as they are, and you know, I'm not going to predict where the Fed's going to be by the time this podcast goes out in a few days' time because it'd like to be higher. But obviously, there's a huge amount of refi risk now that didn't exist, say, even a year ago or two years ago, particularly. And that's further twisting said knife at the worst possible time, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's very different than the last financial crisis. So back in, call it, 08 to 10, you had a lot of buildings that got in trouble. They went into special servicing, which is where usually there's some sort of default or a lack of funds in some escrow accounts that 
cause a loan to be pulled into a special process. It can be a negotiation. It could end up in more like a bankruptcy type process. And in the last crisis, a lot of the lenders were willing to what we call blend and extend and give people more time and hope the market recovered. This time, we're seeing a lot less of that. Most of the loans on the buildings in the U.S. here are interest-only, several-year notes. And to your point, when they come due, you're going to need to refinance. Many of them now have zero or negative equity in the buildings and a significantly higher borrowing cost. And some are simply not able to get any financing at any price. So it's a bloodbath. Yeah, and that must be the case for some of the older, what you refer to as commoditized stock, right? Because who is going to refinance some 60s building that's got terrible sustainability criteria that's going to cost an absolute fortune in CapEx to bring up to standard? And you guys in New York also, you've introduced some quite stringent regulation over the last few years haven't you around carbon emissions and there are some existing building regs on things like staircases that we're now finally introducing in britain and all of these things basically combine to make it super expensive to bring buildings to standard and also to convert them for apartment use yeah absolutely in new york specifically there's something called local law 97 i'm not an expert in it but the long and short of it is it will create over time phasing of requirements of what you need to hit in terms of your energy efficiency. And very few of the buildings are able to hit it. It will be very expensive to bring them up. There's a lot of negotiation right now about whether landlords would be able to buy some sort of offset credits rather than actually physically reducing the emissions of their buildings. But of course, that kind of defeats the purpose of trying to green the buildings. So a lot of open-ended decisions still to be made there. It is extremely cost prohibitive. Yeah, and big big questions about offsets as well, isn't there really, in terms of how kosher many of these offset schemes are? Yeah, and that's an issue everywhere in the carbon neutral market. Like how much are you really decreasing emissions by buying these credits? It depends what kind of credits they are and what they're from. And then to your point, on the residential conversion. So it would be amazing in a city where we have an acute housing shortage where people who make six-figure income struggle to get a studio apartment and a glut of office space, everybody would say, oh, why don't you convert that into apartments? And as we had mentioned before, there are some very onerous local rules. So in order to be an apartment building in New York, the windows on the units need to open. And none of the office buildings built after 1960 have openable windows. So even if the floor plates or the location or the light works, you'd need to completely reskin all of these buildings or change the rules. And nobody's willing to change the rules just yet. Mm, yeah, I wonder how likely that is going to be. Moving on from New York, again, San Francisco seems to be one of the worst hit of the major cities. From your overview, what's going on in San Francisco? Is it in a death spiral or is that just hyperbole? It is in a very tough spot and it's been building up to it for a long time. The saving grace was that there were a lot of high paying jobs and very innovative companies and people wanted to have those jobs at those companies. And then suddenly COVID untethered the requirement of being in the Bay Area. And people had been complaining about the quality of life and the cost of living in the Bay Area for many years, and they just had to suck it up. And then once you were able to work remotely, suddenly you could go get that house in Montana or Colorado and still keep your high-paying job. 
tech companies were on the forefront of being the most flexible at work. You're seeing a lot of reversal of that now. So Salesforce is the largest employer in downtown San Francisco of a private company, at least. Mark Benioff was virtual first early, and now he's saying, wait a minute, our employees that were hired remote only aren't as productive as the ones who at least came to the office part of the time, and we need to readjust our culture to do that. So you're seeing that more and more. Well, you've got Martin Sorrell now saying that (laughs) same thing. This is the guy who's been buying up digital marketing companies for how many years now, moaning about this and now accepting it in their latest results a couple of weeks ago. But uh, it's an interesting landscape. So which places are benefiting? Because there obviously are some that have done well. Austin in Texas has boomed in recent years. Other places like Dallas, where else? And why are those places doing well whilst the Golden Gate Bridge is a bit of a backdrop to carnage. Yeah, and actually, Austin is having a rough go this year so far. Facebook and Google both built beautiful new buildings along the river. I believe Google is going to move into theirs, but Facebook has not even built out the interiors on theirs. And in a small market like that, putting half a million square feet on the sublease market actually moves the entire market. So it'll be really interesting to see Austin so heavily focused on some of these very large employers, what their hiring plans will be. Other cities like Dallas, Atlanta, Tampa are just absolutely growing due to just natural factors that were in play before COVID as well, which is high access to education, a young and educated and growing workforce net domestic migration moving into those places, government incentives that subsidize companies moving jobs from high-cost markets to those low-cost markets. And then during COVID, again, everybody realized you don't need to be in a tier one cost city and still have a very good job, both financially and in terms of interesting work at a nice company. But that's been going on for a long time. We have a location consulting group that's been moving insurance and banking companies out of New York down south for 30 years, and now they're doing it more with tech companies. So where else are they moving? So I think Research Triangle North Carolina is probably where that team has sent the most jobs. Deutsche Bank, uh, Credit Suisse, MetLife, Fidelity, AIG, all very New York-heavy workforces where they moved thousands and thousands of jobs down to places like the Carolinas. And when I went there and met with Credit Suisse in their office, I was surprised to hear that their frontline investment banking analysts are there. And many of them have equal or higher evaluation ratings than their counterparts in New York and London. So you can have front office client facing roles in these cities and it's not a huge deal. You know, somebody can fly to New York on a two hour flight for the meetings that they need to do in New York. Mm. Once the argument over here in England, where obviously I would say you can get a two hour train from Manchester to London, except everyone's on strike here in the minute. So that, <laughs> you might be better off taking Rishi Sunak's helicopter. But before we go on and talk about some of the tech stuff, Doug, yeah. is there anything that the Brits, the Europeans can learn from the current experience across the States in terms of how our office market evolves. I mean, luckily, we don't have quite the same depth of brown stock that you guys have in many cities. But nevertheless, we're still going to have some pain. And I don't think it's been priced in just yet. There seems to be a lot of, as you described, our version of extend and pretend here is happening now. And there still seems to be a lot of people living in cloud cuckoo land, I would argue on valuations. But 
That's me, what do I know? <laughs> yeah, if we knew, we would make a lot more money acting on that. So, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, in some ways, this is the most sophisticated market simply because some of the values are the highest. In other ways, we're years behind the continent in terms of ESG and just generally that approach to real estate in general, considering how large an impact it has in commercial and residential properties on the overall <laughs> totals. I don't want to brandish the whole of North America with the same brush. That's yeah. slightly unfair. But there are parts of the United States that have literally made it illegal, haven't you, to talk about sustainability. And yeah. you know, it's a real threat to some investment houses in Europe that when they go and speak to some investors in certain states they get booted out of the state if they yeah. pull out a deck that talks about exactly net zero and that's a sad place to be isn't it yeah it is and really when you look at esg the e is the only one that most real estate departments at a big corporation are comfortable touching maybe social when it comes to procurement but we're just getting to the point in the u.s where organizations are setting ESG goals. Usually to get your first certifications in ESG, you merely have to check a box that you created a plan. The plan didn't need to actually do anything. So we're just at that stage on our side of the pond. I think where we are probably ahead is what I will call exploring workplace experience and how to get people engaged and measure what is happening in the workplace, what you can do to get your employees engaged and to get them to show up. And we're doing that through technology. So I think that is one of the things that's starting here and will expand around the globe next. That's a shame there's not more people in the office than to enjoy it. It's the <laughs> obvious point. But I'm oh, sorry, that's a bit unfair. But let's talk about that. So you're within Savills and you're the co-product manager of Knowledge Cube. Now that's a data analytics platform that's owned by Savills and it specializes in workplace data and understanding the user experience of, it's just of office workers, right? Uh, no, we have content for industrial, we can do retail. Our practice here is primarily office, but the platform is flexible and capable of doing many things. I guess if they can't convert those office buildings to resi, maybe they'll have to convert some of them to last mile yeah. industrial, just a sort of 40 story industrial <laughs> warehouses. But that's another podcast yeah. series, I think. But I'm interested on the data front. Yep. Because you've recently made an acquisition or you signed a big partnership with a company called HQO, yes. uh, which is a great name for a business. <laughs> what was all that about? What do they do? What's the purpose of that tie-up? So Knowledge Cubed is a platform that primarily helps the decision makers at large occupiers, meaning the tenants who occupy commercial properties, make strategic decisions about how best to house their operations. Historically, it was getting the data out of your leases. It was getting some sort of measure of heads and seats and capacity and occupancy. Back in the days, an optimized portfolio meant you had generally the right amount of space and you hopefully were not overpaying too much per square foot. Everything became about the ratios of how many square feet per seat and how many conference rooms per private seat and all of that type of thing. Now, in order to figure out how much space you really need, you got to understand what people are doing, what they're engaging with, what they're using within a space. And there's now software that's called Workplace Experience Software that goes on every employee's phone. Think of it like your universal key card for the office. So you use it to get into the turnstile in the lobby. It opens the door at your floor. You book your seat or your conference room through it. You order your lunch delivery through it. 
you submit a ticket when the light bulb burns out. And the goal is to create this monitoring and feedback loop. So once you order or reserve or get something, the app will ask you like at the end of an Uber ride, how was the experience? People are somewhat over-surveyed these days. So the idea of doing a huge survey of your entire workforce all the time becomes overkill. But if somebody asks for something and then at the end you asked, how was it? They're usually willing to participate in that. And so for the first time ever, we're really going to be able to tell whether what you do leads your employees to be more engaged and show up because we're going to have the clicks in the app that are going to tell us what people are engaging with. So it's a bit like a Fitbit for the workplace. Exactly. And the reason for the partnership, HQO, they recently bought another UK company called Leaseman, which has been doing these sort of traditional workforce surveys for many, many years now. They're very good at collecting that data. But if you've ever had a Fitbit watch and you open an app, you look at a chart. And if you're not a doctor or a personal trainer, you probably don't really know what to do with the data other than look at it. And so we're the doctor or personal trainer in that analogy, helping the companies that are in these buildings understand what the data is telling them and suggesting recommendations for how to get their people more engaged or at least making sure they're investing their capital in the things that their employees value most. Mm. So given the surge of interest over the last six months, really, around artificial intelligence, where do you see that having a role? Because at the minute, most people are just using platforms like ChatGPT to do relatively low-brow stuff, like getting it to say offensive words, getting it to write recipes, <laughs> or do business-critical things like suggesting family holiday locations on the far other side of the world. And then you've got these other groups that are all foreseeing Terminator 2-style world-ending events, which could actually be a relief given the current political situation, both in the States and in England. So maybe apocalypse is what we all deserve and need. <laughs> Perhaps not, no, Doug Jason, yeah. you might have a different view. Uh, no, I have a very strong opinion. So we've been using AI since 2017. We won the Cornet Global Innovators Award for our first foray into the AI space, collaborating with a prop tech startup called Leverton, which has since been bought by MRI. Basically, the robot is not coming for you immediately. What we've learned and what we won the award for and what we did better than our competitors, CBRE and JLL, who tried to use similar software, they assumed that you could outsource everything to the technology vendor and just expect to get back what you want. And AI is only as good as you train it. And real estate is an industry where data is generally kept more private than many other industries. And so there's not a lot of data sets or people training the AI to do anything, let alone exactly what you want. So AI is a great tool to augment capacity. AI will not take your job, but somebody using AI will probably take your job because they'll be able to do several times as much work in the same amount of time, and that will just be considered normal production. And if you're not catching up, <laughs> you're just underproducing, and the world will adjust. What are the things, what are the functions then that yeah. AI is going to disrupt first? I'm not just thinking in terms of office agency, but I'm thinking yeah. right across the whole gamut of jobs in yeah. the sector. So the biggest impact it had for many years up until now was structuring the data from contracts. So think of 
nearly every commercial property contract was a document that was printed out, signed with real ink by hand, and then scanned again. And of course, when they printed it and scanned it, you ended up with a PDF of varying qualities. Some of them are good, some of them are not. But all of the information and text was trapped in that PDF. So optical character recognition, which is literally a computer reading the letters in the PDF and converting it into a searchable and readable form, was an amazing first use case for AI because suddenly all of these contracts where people were manually reading and extracting the data, you could automate at least the first go of it and then the humans are just checking and correcting it. And so we... Not the most sexy use not of the most ex- <laughs> Yeah, it's not sexy, but it's expensive and time consuming. And so the idea... Here's how we used it. Traditionally, if you wanted to go in to talk to a company about one location, you would say, give me your lease amendments, the statements from the landlord of the utilities and taxes and all that, your floor plans. Give us a couple weeks. We'll come back with a whole synopsis of your situation and we'll give you an abstract of your contract, a financial analysis of how much you owe and all of those ideas. Yeah. And now we can go in and say, we're going to give you a similar consulting report with the same level of analytical rigor also in a few weeks. But instead of for one location, we can do it for up to 100. Yeah. And so when you go in and offer to do 100 locations in a couple of weeks, that's something that I know my competitors are not yet able to offer. And so, again, being able to identify quickly what's important is something AI is amazing at. Just like in the legal industry, attorneys now use AI to tag keywords in millions and millions of documents. It pulls up the documents that are relevant and then a lawyer checks it. So you haven't replaced a lawyer. You've just made a lawyer's job that much quicker and easier. Now on the sexier side, we have within Savills an innovation studio. I'm on the board of it. We are assembling an AI task force. So we will have a number of different pilot projects going with various vendors for the foreseeable future. On the production side, so a chat GPT could greatly increase our business development team's capacity to do things like respond to RFPs, you know, just writing narrative text that takes a long time. If this can allow you to cut that in half, you can just increase the number of pitches that you can provide that level of support to. On the analytics side, it's going to be much slower going simply because, again, most real estate companies tend to hoard their data. And so the AI companies do not really have access to the volume of training inputs that a general language AI would. But in fairness, one of the things I think where you guys are ahead of us in Europe is on how transparent your mortgage data is in terms mm. of commercial mortgages. And you've got a much deeper, a much more functional CMBS market there as a result of this. Yeah. And going back to what we were talking about at the start of our conversation, this tide now of refinancing that we're going to have to see or not see yep. around outdated buildings, a lot of that's going to be trackable, which potentially is a good thing and potentially may create other uses for real-time analytics. Yeah, that CMBS market is a double-edged sword. So earlier we were talking about that special servicing process when landlords enter trouble. When you get a loan from a local bank, you can negotiate with them and it's pretty straightforward. When that loan is packaged into bonds and sold to the market, there's no one person to negotiate with. So there's a servicer that collects the money and disperses the money, but they're not empowered to actually alter the terms of the deal. So the special servicing 
process exists when someone needs to go to all the bondholders and change the terms of the bond, which is, you know, obviously not ideal. So that market is pretty robust. It is somewhat transparent. We've been reading the filings from the Securities Exchange Commission for years in order to get some of the data on buildings, like who are the tenants, how much are they paying when their lease expires. So that is transparent. But trying to negotiate with anyone through those structures is very difficult. And then on the regional banking side, so we've had some very big bank failures in the U.S. recently. I'm going to ask a question. I mean, how many bank failures make a banking crisis? Yeah, well... (sighs) You know, JP Morgan seems to be benefiting handsomely from this, and many people will be fine. I think the biggest issue is the regional lenders that are going under were the ones that were making many of the loans on the commercial properties in these regional markets. And JP Morgan may not want to continue in the line of business to the extent that they were before. So it's going to become a problem, as we said earlier, when the notes come due and they try and refinance and the relationship-based bank that gave them the last loan will now be part of a much bigger bank that may not want to be in that business anymore. Yes, and I think there'll be a few people tightening the reins, certainly with some of those sorts of deals. Just coming back to the data, what are people saying about being back at the office or not? And what do you think is driving the real gulf in sentiment and in office activity between different cities Because, again, it's night and day, isn't it, with place-to-place, often among very similar age employees. Yeah, it all comes down to earning the commute. And so some of the challenges in high-cost markets like New York and the Bay Area, even before the pandemic, people had very long commutes because it was expensive to live downtown. And if you need more space, you got to move further away. In markets where... COVID was not as much of a big deal. So think many of the Southern states, people tend to live closer to the offices. It's easier to get there. It wasn't locked down to the extent, like Florida never fully locked down. So it's the complete opposite of New York in many ways. But you need to earn the commute. And so what happens is people come in and if the people that you want to see are here and you actually get to collaborate with them, you view it as a positive experience. But if you come in, to the office and you end up on Zooms the whole time, it's emotionally draining. And you say, I could have done that from my own house. So it is creating engaging experiences for your people when they're here. And you can do that a couple ways. You can have robust programming so that there's always something interesting to see or do when people arrive. You can give teams the autonomy to come in together when it makes sense for them and then not worry about coming in the rest of the time. Or think about what most of us went through at university, where you had class a couple days a week, they had a library for you to do your homework, but you weren't required to do it there. Everybody shows up for classes, but some people go to the library to do their private quiet work, and other people do it in their living room, and nobody really cared. So as long as you can make sure that people are together when they need to be, they don't mind coming. And the answer is it's usually less than five days per week. And if you're okay with that, then great. And we'll help you figure out how much and what kind of space you will need in order to accommodate that. And it's probably a lot less than you have today. And by the way, we're in a tough economic environment. Those savings are real. CFOs noticed during COVID when they were able to let leases expire or get rid of space that they saved a lot of money. And so many of them are not eager to 
take on another cost line item in an era if things are working reasonably well for them. Mm. So is all of this going to potentially undermine the wider system of leases and the wider agency model if people can just walk away from leases when times get tough rather than stick with them and AI and analytics are going to start to take away some of the magic dust from the surveyors networks what's left at the end of it a hospitality business so (laughs) it's a direct consumer hospitality business yeah and it depends who you call the consumer direct to company yeah direct to company that's what i mean so consumer in this context would be salesforce or jp yeah 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 most investors historically have thought of real estate like buying a bond you get however many years of lease payments and at the end instead of a coupon payment you get the building and you can either sell it or refill it and start a new payment structure it's a very passive model and in order to attract and retain tenants you're going to need to make their employees feel engaged and the way to do that is offering a level of hospitality that the bricks and sticks old real estate industry is not used to providing in this particular asset class and the players who do it well will win and many people who don't adapt will struggle And then, you know, there's going to be the segment, especially in a place like New York, many of the buildings are owned outright by families with not a lot of debt or none. And it's really just a cash flow business. And their goal is merely to just keep everything humming along. And there will be a space in a commodity market for them to offer a discounted product for the people who need a discount. But the returns may not be the same as they were before. Why would you own a building now at a four and a half cap rate if treasuries pay four and a half percent or a high yield savings account. So there's going to have to be a complete change to the way returns are generated in this industry. And there are some players who are going to do it well. Many of the landlords got into the service and co-working space game. Some of them by force when they lease space to WeWork that then went dark and they had to take it back and learn how to operate themselves. Some who didn't want to lose that part of the value chain to a company like a WeWork or a Regis and wanted to learn how to sell that type of product themselves. And they're doing it. And they offer a great product under flexible terms. And you pay more per square foot, but you have the ability to increase or decrease your square feet relatively easily. And people find that to be a good trade-off. You can run a volatility model on your headcount and figure out how much of a premium you could pay per person or per foot and come out ahead based on how much you think your demand will vary. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating couple of years seeing how that market evolves. Yeah. And for anybody wanting more information on Knowledge Cube, Doug, where do they need to head to? Yeah, knowledgecubed.com with a D at the end of it. It's our website. You can go to the Savills website itself. But if you just Google Knowledge Cubed, you will find us there. Okay. Well, look, it would be great to have you back at some point and talk about some of the data and some of those insights that you're gathering forward. But for now, it's been lovely to speak to you, lovely to meet you this morning, and great just to hear your views about the US market. I'm keen that we can do a few more of these deep dives into different markets, different cities. So anyone's got any suggestions for guests or things that we should be covering, that would be great to hear them. But Doug Jameson from Savills and your co-product manager at Knowledge Cubed, thank you very much for giving up your time to chat on Propcast. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. You can subscribe 
on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from in the US or in the UK and Europe. Just search PropCast. Do leave some reviews, suggest some guests, leave us some kind comments, leave us some abuse. Whatever you'd like to do, please do it. Obviously, keep checking propertyweek.com for the latest news. I have been Andrew Teacher from Montford Real Estate in London. Thank you very much, and we'll see you again very, very soon.